you know, the, the young people know what's up. <laughs> they know what they're experiencing. They know how the world works. Very young children, right? They're very keen on understanding issues about fairness. They they know that people say, oh, everyone's equal, but that doesn't look right, right? Can, young kids know this. They know they live in segregated communities, right? Well, mom and dad, if everyone's equal, how come we live in an all white area, right? They understand these things, but then society keeps reinforcing these messages that oh, it's blame the victim, right? It's their fault. And they kind of want to keep that, that narrative going. And so I think what we're going to see is that young people have always demanded the truth and found it in multiple ways. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Greetings and welcome to Black Lives Matter at School, Iowa edition. My name is Lisa Covington. I'm a part of a collective of teachers and educators in the state of Iowa centered on empowering Black children. Today, I'm excited to be in conversation with educators from across the country um, and here in Iowa about Black Lives Matter at school. And before we all introduce ourselves in our work, I just want to uplift some of our ancestors um, and um, founders, Harriet Curley, the first Black teacher hired um, in Iowa in the Des Moines School District in the 1940s. Also wanna uplift Alexander Clark, who desegregated schools in Muscatine, Iowa in 1868, and was also the first black person to graduate from the University of Iowa Law School. And so just wanted to uplift those, those works and folks who empower us to keep doing this work today. And so, I'm going to just start us off by asking everyone to talk a little bit about the work that you do and what brings you to this work. Why, why do Black Lives Matter? Hi, my name is Lucky Kiche. I am a teacher in the Iowa City uh, Community School District. I am Black and queer and a non-binary trans man and... I am doing the work every day when I show up for my kids. I teach sixth grade and I am happy to be here. Right on. Thanks for organizing this event, Lisa. I greatly appreciate the invitation to be in dialogue with you all. My name is Jesse Hagopian. I use he, him pronouns and I teach ethnic studies and social studies and language arts in, in Seattle. And um, on the steering committee of Black Lives Matter at school and helped edit the book with Denisha, Black Lives Matter at school. And really looking forward to this conversation. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Denisha Jones. I use she, her, hers. 
and I am a professor, a teacher educator. I've been in education for a while, but at the higher ed level, preparing our future teachers at Sarah Lawrence College and also on the National Steering Committee for Black Lives Matter at school. Um, and was really fortunate to work with Jesse to tell to help tell the stories of all the teachers who have been doing this work um, for the past four or five years. And so it's been really exciting um, to kind of help get that story out because um, it is a movement, as, as we know, that's that's growing and, and is being attacked, as we know as well too. So it's more important than ever um, that teachers and parents and students um, really talk about what this movement means to them. So thank you, uh, Lisa, for reaching out and wanting to bring this Iowa edition of Black Lives Matter at School to um, to the world because they need to hear it for sure. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to have everyone share and tell us more about um, some of the work that you do and why why do Black Lives Matter at school? What is it and what does that mean to you? Maybe we should start with our Iowa participants first. <laughs> All right. OK, um, so the work that I do. So I'm actively teaching my kids every day about diversity and equity and how to be a good citizen in society. Um, I focus a lot on the differences that everybody has that I teach with. And I try to highlight those differences. Um, I'm also a part of the LGBTQIA plus committee. So we're doing work to make sure that kids are able to go to the bathroom they want to go to, or they're able to learn about individuals that are like them. And I can I can also share since we're all just in conversation in the work that Black Lives Matter at School Iowa does. Um, again, just a collective of teachers, black teachers specifically to create a space of support and also. Beyond just venting, but talking about what actions can we take to change the spaces in the school or outside of the school. And so we do a um, monthly Saturday school with Black students, and they virtually show up. They have been for about a year now to learn about different topics. So in April, um, I did a lesson on Black liberation, right? And teaching, you know, fifth graders, there were some high schoolers in there learning about Asada Shakur learning about Erica Huggins, right? And so each month we rotate. So there's a different Black educator for the students each month to just come and learn and be together and know that it is okay to be Black and to learn about who you are. We also do uh, Black Film Fridays. This Friday, we're showing little for students. Again, just virtually showing up to, to hang out. Um, we do career days with Black professionals. Tomorrow, we have a HBCU versus PWI, a little different versus than, than the ones on IG, but um, really just to get students some exposure to what's it like to go to an HBCU, what's it like to go to a predominantly white institution. So um, I think that for me is, is the work. A lot of times it happens outside of the school building and in communal spaces. And so I'm really interested to, to have this conversation and to see 
how we can continue working together. Jesse, you want to jump in or should I? Go ahead, Denisha. I'll fit. Yeah. Um, so as a, I was a kindergarten teacher and, you know, I do this work because I wish it was around in 2003, 2004, when I was teaching kindergarten in Washington, D.C. I wish I had the language that my little babies needed. Right. I had young five, six year olds who were struggling against the gender binary, who didn't really understand sexual orientation, but were trying to make sense of it. And I didn't have the language of queer affirming and transgender affirming. And I think about how different that year might have been for those students in particular, if they got that, right? And I think how important that is at such a young level to provide students um, with this information and thinking about my own experiences in predominantly white schools in New Jersey um, and trying to be raceless and trying to be not as black as I was in hopes that I would be accepted for that and and having that be my guide all the way till I finally broke out, graduated high school and moved to Chocolate City, aka Washington, D.C., right? So it's very much wanting a different experience um, for for Black children like myself and others who don't see themselves, right, in the windows and the mirrors of the school curriculum and and kind of feel like they don't don't have a positive Black identity, right, because the schools don't provide it um, for lots of reasons, right? And, And so I think that's what really draws me to this work. And then working with teachers, right, thinking about how this is so critical. It's not really optional um, for you to say, well, I just want to go in and teach the kids. I don't really want to <laughs> focus on this stuff. No, this is the this is the work, right? This is the work. And you're going to do this work if you come out of a program that I am a part of, because I believe you, there's no other choice, right? If you're going to serve children well, that you're going to understand, um, you know, racial identity development and, and positive cultural affirmations and why it's needed for Black children in the curriculum, right? And especially um, starting with the little ones, which we've done a really good job, I think, of is really bringing this work in the early years and so that it builds upon. And so I want to continue um, to do that in, in, in ways that really, really show up for Black students in our schools. Right on, right on. I uh, I love this question and this conversation because it really fills my heart to hear about the work you're doing in Iowa and to know that we built Black Lives Matter at school movement, you know, starting with one elementary school in Seattle, John Muir Elementary School, and it spread across the city and then it spread across the country to Philly and they founded the Week of Action and then it became a national Week of Action. And we did all this so we could help black teachers in places like Iowa who are under attack from bills trying to ban the teaching of structural racism to to just the everyday attacks you all face, you know, and to know that uh, you're not isolated, right? It is just a wonderful feeling. And and all of us need that kind of support, regardless of where we're at, right? And so this movement to me is, is so life affirming. And um, So it's just beautiful to have this conversation. And when I think about what does Black Lives Matter at school mean to me, I'm I think I'm compelled to be part of this movement for the same reasons that uh, Jarvis uh, Givens wrote in his book that just came out, Fugitive Pedagogy. If people haven't checked this out, I would highly recommend this book. And he writes that black education was a fugitive project from its inception, outlawed and defined as a criminal act 
regarding the slave population in the southern states and, at times, too, an object of suspicion and violent resistance in the north. And he quotes Carter G. Woodson's observing that enslaved black people pursued learning as a means of escape, right? And so I really feel that I want to escape too, right? I want to get free. I want to run away with myself. As Frederick Douglass's slave master put it, right? He said that enslaved people would, who learned to read and write would, quote, run away with themselves. And, and I think that's what we're trying to do is, is get free. Ever since, you know, the first, the, the first laws banning literacy for enslaved African people date back to 1740 with the Stono Rebellion. And, and you know, the enslavers knew that <laughs> When we pursued education, it, it could help us get free, right? And so they began outlawing it from, from that early time. And I feel like that's what this movement is. It's a continuation of that long black freedom struggle that education has always been a critical component of. But so much of our schooling today is about punishment, control, fear, shame, competition, Right. Especially for black students. And so I think we need a total transformation of the education system to be about healing and joy and collaboration and problem solving. And we need more abolitionist teachers, as Dr. Bettina Love has called on us to be right so that we can end the dramatic disproportionate suspension rates going on uh, across the country. You know, my own city of Seattle on occupied Duwamish land. Uh, there was a story that just broke in the news a couple months ago about a second grader named Jaleel, a black boy who was being locked away in an outdoor facility they called the cage. And the principal would open it up, lock him in there, and then unlock it to slide him food at lunch. And he had to eat it on the cold c concrete because they didn't even give him a desk to sit in. And here you have a predominantly white school where white students are walking by at lunch, pointing and laughing, right? And they're teaching kids from the earliest age to accept that black people should be locked away, right? To accept the logic of mass incarceration from the time of elementary school. And that's why I'm in this movement. I want to undo that and make it about our collective liberation and that intersectional uh, vision that that Black Lives Matter at school has built is also just, I think, so critical to understanding there isn't one black experience that that we have to understand the overlapping forms of privilege and oppression that create um, the different experiences and the different forms of oppression that we have to fight collectively. So. That's what I would say. Thank you all so much. I think that a lot of what you all are saying is just very similar, right? Even though we're located in different places, it just sounds so familiar to me. And so I think that um, I want to just make sure I back up to say um, that we're um, wishing Mate well because he wanted to join us, was planning to, but could not at the last minute. So hoping he's feeling better. Um, 
and want to kind of shift to think about student experiences in Iowa and how do we how do we address some of the issues that students have and I I was thinking about uh, Kiche and just what you what your experience is um, as a teacher currently in Iowa, but also as someone who went to school in Iowa. And if you could just share with us, you know, some of your experiences with that then and now. Absolutely. Yeah, I think was when I was thinking about this earlier, I was thinking that a lot of my memories that I have are um, basically blocked out or not worth remembering. Um, I grew up in an environment where I thought my teachers were there to support me and help me. But as a child, it felt different because I didn't know the stigma and the way that they would treat me and compared to my white counterparts. Um, I didn't understand that as a child. And then as I grew older, I felt like, oh, this isn't right. I should be able to get an equal chance to my peers. I'm not less smart than them, but why, what is going on that is making me being treated differently? And I have parents who are, I was lucky enough to advocate for me, um, but not everybody has that. So many African-Americans or people um, of color have been wronged by the education system. So when you have parents who have kids in the system, they don't really want some of them, I cannot say all of them, but there are some of them who have that bad experience who do not want to be involved in that educational aspect, talking to the teachers, talking about education, because what they've seen prior to that is has not been good. Now, obviously, we want to change that and make sure that we have the involvement. So we need to have a conversation about how are we getting these children who are now adults um, where is the restorative justice so that we can carry that hurt from these parents down to the children and move past that anger um, that has been built and that the wrongness that has been built? Um, within growing up, I did face a lot of racism, a lot of um, teachers grouping me with only black kids because that's what it was, you know, and I, and at that point I was in high school and that was when I was able to be like, oh, this is not OK. Why are we being um, segregated? And it is not segregation. It was the 2000s. So there's nothing that should have been um, there with that. Now, as an educator and it also let me back up the language that I have today to teach my children, I did not have when I was a kid. So being able to um, come out and say that, oh, I'm more than just being a lesbian or gay or, you know, the basic terms, but I can identify myself in a certain way that's more fitting to me. And then I can show, I can find my own representation and then I can show my students what they're missing out on and what other people are unable to use. I feel like when we have intersectionalities, we're able to see the scope through our own eyes in a certain way. And we pay attention to the things that directly affect us. So when you're not a part of something, sometimes you don't think about it until it happens. And growing up, I, I started to think, oh, I'm a little bit different. I'm a little bit gay. I'm a little bit this and this and that. But becoming 
more educated was part of my own devices, um, not necessarily part of my teacher's help. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think that that stigma um, is very common um, for for black students and black queer students in particular. I mean, I think that I just I wonder about how your school or school district respond to your experiences and how are you supported in in that regard? I think that as time goes, we're becoming more supported, um, but it wasn't always the case when I'm talking about, for example, I wanted to do a little drag show um, for the kids to to show them um, that, look, this is some kind of form of art. You know, you go to a play and you see pe- people put on makeup and do all these things. So I'm going to show you a person who's part of this community and they wear makeup and they act and do the same things. But that was um, turned down because people were scared of how others might react. And, I, and, and, and that was also something hurtful for me because I'm sitting here saying, look, I have these kids who want to see something, who want to learn, who need to be exposed. And you're also telling me expose them to diversity. But then you don't want me to do it past a certain level. And I think that's a big problem is that the district um, and a lot of people who educate who can be scared of getting past that base level of change. We, we have a language. You say, oh, we're going to be more inclusive. We're going to talk about pronouns. We're going to um, change whatever the students need to change to be inclusive or to, to feel welcome. But then when it comes to a certain aspect, we're like, oh, that's a little too far and it makes us a little uncomfortable. But it's not about other people being uncomfortable. It's about the students being uncomfortable. And I think adults and educators often forget that it's not about that. Definitely. And I think, you know, those intersectional identities are so important, like you mentioned, but also the utility sometimes of schools to use this language that appears to be inclusive and welcoming, but often in action, that's not the case. Um, I remember um, a teacher came to our group and shared that she wanted that their school had like a Black Lives Matter sign um, up. And she was like, they need to take that down because they're not doing anything in the curriculum that shows that. They're not doing anything to support black teachers in this particular district. So how can they have this signpost and not do anything? And I just wanted to kind of see what Denisha and Jesse, what you all experience with kind of folks using language that appears to be focused on black experiences, but it ends up the opposite being true. So I'm just wondering, um, Denisha, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what um, Keche shared is, you know, similar across, you know, different experiences, um, especially in those predominantly white spaces, right? That may or not may, many black students find themselves in, and you know, I. 
I think I love for me, it's when how they misuse civil rights leaders in their quotes, right? Like people like to take the, the famous Dr. King quote about not judging someone on the content and the character of their skin and totally misuse it to somehow put out ra- reverse racism as a real thing. <laughs> like that's not what he had in mind, right? Or, or the stories they tell about Rosa Parks, right? That's always one of my, you know, ones that I always taught my students when I, I learned this in my grad program in the social studies methods class. It's a, it's a lesson called a cooperative biology right, where you get students to work in small groups and author a biography about someone famous. And so when we teach the college students, the pre-service teachers, we we do row the parks. And, you know, normally the, car, the course is in the winter, so we know her birthday's in February, right? And we can do the bus boycott started in December, right? So we can tie it in. But really it's to dispel all the horrible myths that kids grow up learning about Rosa Parks, right? They don't know that she was part of the NAACP, that she was part of a movement, that she knew what was happening across the country and, and that she was aware, right? And that she was actively engaging for her people against the struggle, right? No one knows that. She, oh, she was just this tired seamstress. So, and, and the way people then try to use her story is to bolster their own right-wing narrative is really, really surprising. So I think that happens a lot. Um, and then also the way neoliberalism sleeps into education is kind of thrown back against against black people, right? Like the whole narrative around school choice and how it's used to say, well, don't you want better black kids to have better schools, right? And go to, but that doesn't fix schools, right? It, it siphons off any black student with the will and desire and their momentum to seek out a better education, but it leaves those who don't have the social capital, cultural capital, or whatever, um, in a system that's designed to to keep them down, right? It's not it's not really designed to make things better, but that narrative is kind of thrown out there and, and, it, and it puts black parents in this awful situation where they have to think about, you know, what's right for their child versus the entire school system, right? And the and, the, and how charter schools are, are problematic for the public education system overall. So I think there's lots of ways like that, that it kind of plays out, but mostly I think it's just the narratives we, we learn about black people. They're always about black inferiority. And I think that starts with the problem, right? That we don't understand black history outside of enslavement, outside of civil rights, right, outside of successful Black people um, in a post-wannabe post-racial era. And so we're very limiting, right? And, and to think about how young children, why they have these concepts about Black people and who they are, because we don't teach them anything better, right, except in February, right? And, and then only the, the few people who are good enough to teach, right? Like, you can teach Martin Luther King and you can teach Rosa Parks. Eh, don't teach too much Malcolm X and don't you damn well teach, you know, Huey P. Newton and all these, you know, other people, the revolutionaries who were out there um, doing all these things, right? Just like in that in that story, the Keche Chol, right? You can't, you know, you can do a little bit. It's like you're, it's the idea of diversity. It's only accepting of differences if they're similar to the mainstream, right? Like you can be a good Black person and we will model you or a good Latinx person or a good, even a good gay person, as long as you're not too gay, right? Like what does that even mean, right? And so we see that a lot and how people um, use that kind of language to, to then really devalue people, right? And we see that happen in the classroom as well. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree. And I think that with the great uprising that occurred over the spring and summer in the wake of the murder of, of so many Black people, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and on and on, I think that it created a situation where many educators knew that they had to now say Black Lives Matter. You know, many schools or administrators knew in in the wake of that 
that you had to say Black Lives Matter or you could end up looking like you were on the side of Trump. But we want to push people to make that mean something. And we want to make sure that when we say Black Lives Matter, we mean all Black Lives Matter. So we want to teach about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King because they had a radical message for transforming this country. (laughs) But we also want to teach that Rosa Parks' hero was Malcolm X, (laughs) right? That she moved to the North after that boycott and lived in Detroit and joined the Black Power Movement, right? We we also want to teach about Black queer people. Our students have a right to learn about Marsha P. Johnson, right? Our students have a right to learn that Baird, right, who, or Marsha P., who launched the Stonewall Rebellion and created the modern day pride parades that everybody's marching in and don't know that it was part of a black rebellion, right? And our students have a right to know about Bayard Rustin, the black gay man who organized the March on Washington. And he's erased from so much of the curriculum. And when he is included, his sexuality is is often erased, right? And so we're about teaching the truth here to our students, right? And that makes some people uncomfortable, but we know that Black Lives Matter, that all Black Lives Matter. And that's why we're organizing this uncompromising movement to make sure we transform our school system so that uh, our, our school system knows it too and helps our students understand their own worth and their own beauty. Can I uh, just add on to that? I completely agree. Um, Just this past, actually 2021, um, at least 21 uh, trans, actually at least 25 transgender or non-binary confirmed, non-binary conforming individuals were either shot or killed in a violent accident or a murder. So I want to point out that like we are dying and the time is now. You cannot have an anti-trans, anti-whatever rhetoric and be a teacher. You have to protect those who are the most vulnerable and doing so will begin to give us a start. Um, LGBTQ populations have been even more um, vulnerable because of COVID-19. So in this day and age, we have to just pay attention to one thing that I want to even like begin the conversation on is mental health. Mental health is the number one thing that we need to focus on um, for these kids to help these kids with their socio-emotional learning and how can um, continue on. Absolutely. And I think that, um, Jesse, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I totally agree with the mental health piece. And it just astounds me that we live in a country that has some 14 million kids that go to a school that have a police officer, but don't have a school psychologist, a nurse, right? A counselor, um, some of the basics to, to provide the holistic learning we know all of our our kids deserve. 
Absolutely. I completely agree. I think that we need to focus on restorative justice and and mending a lot of those relationships that we have. And that goes along with that mental health and talking about our feelings and helping these kids uh, manage their feelings so that we, they don't need that police officer or they don't need that um basically the the police officers who who are not going to help because unless they're trained as counselors and they do the double job, it's not, you know, what these kids need. Right. And it just makes me think of our week of action here this year. We had the second annual week of action for Iowa. We had folks from all over the country join us virtually and especially thinking about our session on fund counselors, not cops, where Dr. Ahmaud Washington was, who was an alumni of the University of Iowa, was talking about how counselors are trained. And part of the training is policing, right? Who gets to go to what schools, um, who should be applying to college, which schools, right? So thinking about Um, And some of the things that he said in that particular session, when you all were talking about mental health, right, and how how do we try to incorporate those things amidst this environment where House File 802 was just signed, right? So, Mm -hmm. which was a week ago Monday. So how do we think about bills like like this and in other states, similar bills are happening um, where there's a constraint on how and what can be taught and that divisive concepts cannot be taught and kind of spelling out what that is. Um, so I, I think it's important to just quote the the law that the governor just signed here, which says you cannot um, teach that the state of Iowa or the United States is systematically or fundamentally um, racist or sexist, right? So, and there, there's a laundry list of other things that you cannot teach. We will continue our insurgent teaching on Saturdays um, with young people. Um, but I think that, you know, that's something I wanted to just bring up to see um, what folks are thinking about um, in relation to these laws in particular. And I'm and I'm wondering, Jesse, what your thoughts are, because Seattle has a very similar demographic as Iowa, right? As far as population, uh, black student population and uh, white student population. And I believe we have some of those statistics as well um, for that because Des Moines schools in 2018, um, 19%, 19% black um Davenport also 19% black Waterloo um almost 30% black Iowa City 20% right so we see all of these different going on as well so Jesse I just wanted to see if you had some thoughts around that yeah these bill all right we're back from break, uh, but I, I want to address that last question that you asked, Lisa, about these bills sweeping the country, banning the teaching of structural racism and sexism and and heterosexism, and 
you all are in the struggle for real in Iowa. There, Iowa and and I believe three other states at this point, including my neighboring state of Idaho, have passed similar bills. Uh, and there are over 15 states across the country that have pending legislation that would ban the teaching of structural racism or the 1619 project or the Zen education project and and other anti-racist curriculum. And it, it just blows my mind. But you can tell that they are scared, right? They wouldn't be trying to ban the teaching of structural racism if there weren't people interested in doing it, right? And the fact is, Black Lives Matter at School National Week of Action tripled in size this year. We had dozens and dozens of communities across the country checking in, uh, participating in this intersectional movement for for teaching about black lives in the classroom and without many thousands of teachers and tens of thousands of students transforming the curriculum it made racists scared and this is what scared racists look like they try to uh get rid of your ability to tell the truth because you literally cannot tell the truth to your students about how this country was founded on genocide of native people, genocide of African people, enslavement of of African people uh, without talking about structural racism. And you can't tell the truth about the legacy of enslavement and Jim Crow and redlining and mass incarceration today without teaching about structural racism. So I'm inspired by you all in Iowa who are saying you are going to teach the truth regardless of the law, because we have to. We can't lie to our students about the fact that the wealth gap in this country today means that at $171,000, the net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than a black family. Right. We have to tell the truth about the fact that a black woman in this country is 243 times more likely to die from pregnancy or child uh, birth related causes than a white woman. Right. These are the products of structural racism. And I know I won't lie to my students about it. And I'm inspired by the many thousands uh, of educators who are rising up. And we, we've had hundreds of them sign the pledge at the Zen Education Project saying that you pledge to teach the truth about racism and other forms of oppression, regardless of the law. So I'm, I'm so heartened by these educators who are willing to risk so much. And um, I know, I think we're going to talk about it some more later, but I want people to know that On June 12th, we're calling on people everywhere to organize a rally in your own locality uh, that would be about raising opposition to these bills that are sweeping the country right now. And folks can go to the Zen Education Project under the news button and find all the information about how to sign the pledge 
and how to organize a rally in your hometown uh, to defend Iowa uh, and all the other states that are passing legislation that would ban teaching the truth. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of what you're saying is just the, this consistency, right, of these laws and bills being presented, pending, or passed. Um, and sometimes teachers feel kind of helpless to do anything around it. And so I think that the Zen Education Project is really helpful in that. I know that um, we were talking about doing an event virtually um, as well on the 12th um, to coincide with a lot of our Juneteenth work. So, um, but Jesse, just, just now you reminded me, and I just want to make sure we uplift and honor today's birth birthday of, of Malcolm X. And he told, he told us, he said only a fool would let his enemy teach his children. Right. And so I think telling the truth is really powerful for us to do, even in the face of being insurgent. And so I'm just wondering um, what what folks are thinking about um, in relation to how student, what students should be learning and the those, this as another barrier, right? And so what what does it mean to teach the truth in this environment, like Jesse is kind of talking about? Denisha, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. As soon as I can unmute. Um, I also, it's also Lorraine Hansberry's birthday. And um, she was someone I didn't learn about until I did a Girl Trek um, series where they teach you about different Black women, Black people in history. And so I thought it was cool because like I was an adult. I learned about Malcolm X, fortunately, as a younger person. But then I was an adult. Still learning. There's still a lot of Black people to learn about, right? That did great things that we're not taught, right? And so that's what we're talking about, you know, today. And it's interesting. It's like, you can't really prevent people from teaching the truth, right? Because, you know, you can say, you know, you can't say that Iowa and the United States are inherently racist or systemically racist, but anybody who the person of color gonna tell you their experience is different, right? You can't deny people's lived realities and experiences and the experiences of their ancestors, no matter what kind of laws you put into place. So I, I find that, you know, on some levels, I think there are some people who are just, you know, this is different, right? We all know what we went to school under the colorblind nonsense sense, right? They're scared. They don't know. Like, I get some parents are like, well, I don't know. What, what, what's what's going to happen? My kid starts calling everybody in the house a racist, right? Well, that's not a bad thing, right? But here's the thing, like, getting, developing a positive racial identity development for Black kids and for white kids is of utmost importance if for the future of the country, right? It really, we're not going to survive if we think we can keep going around with this racism ended a long time ago, it doesn't exist kind of narrative. These kids are wholly unprepared for real life. As a college professor, I can assure you, they show up to these environments and they're out of their depth because they have not been exposed to the real world. And they're, and we expect them to, and we expect them to be global citizens and we expect them to have that kind of cultural competence to like recognize their place in the world with other people. And they're wholly unprepared. And I see that, that, you know, so there's a lot of fear out there, but then there's the people who just know better and don't want, right. They want to cover up history and make history more palatable to themselves. Right. And again, I just think, 
you know, the, the young people know what's up. <laughs> they know what they're experiencing. They know how the world works. Very young children, right? They're very keen on understanding issues about fairness. They they know that people say, oh, everyone's equal, but that doesn't look right, right? Young kids know this. They know they live in segregated communities, right? Well, mom and dad, if everyone's equal, how come we live in an all white area, right? They understand these things, but then society keeps reinforcing these messages that oh, it's blame the victim, right? It's their fault. And they kind of want to keep that, that narrative going. And so I think what we're going to see is that young people have always demanded the truth and found it in multiple ways, right? The young, we forget about the young people of the civil rights movement, right? The young people who filled the jails in the South, right? Kids, right? From six years old to 16 years old who said, we're going to, we're going to cause trouble too. Like we want to be a part of this and we're going to, we're going to get ourselves arrested and overwhelm the system and, and do our part, right? In hopes that they wouldn't actually beat the children the way they might do the adults, right? They've always been part of this. They've always found ways to learn and get information. Right. And I think, you know, that's all that's going to continue to happen, but it's not going to be hidden. Right. We're not going to hide about this. We're going to flaunt these laws, these unjust laws right out in the public. Right. And 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 let the system show that it, it can't stop. Right. It can't stop people from learning about who they are. And and that and that's what scares people, that that liberation that really comes from knowing this knowledge. Right. Because once you understand yourself in a way that's not through a lens of inferiority. Right. Then you see possibility. You see promise. You see histories that show you who your people are and the strength of what the the black struggle is and what it's all about and why we're fighting for that liberation. And and that is scary for some people, but it's not about them, right? And it's never been about them. And so I'm really interested in seeing the educators who are going to continue to do this work on an ethical level, right? And thinking about as as teaching, as abolitionist teaching and anti-racist teaching and that fugitive pedagogy, right, as as ethical ways of how you do this work, right, and that you're going to be committed to doing that regardless of what some politician thinks you should or should not be talking about, right, in your classroom because you owe it to your students. And um, I think we're, I mean, we're going to see some pushback, I hope, and the laws will be challenged, you know, um, but that's going to take a while to work itself out. In the meantime, we just have to keep doing what we're doing, um, knowing that, that, that we are, that we're doing the right thing by our students. Right. And I think that, you know, the content of what is taught being being the issue within this particular bill, but it doesn't, I didn't see anything in it that talked about the state proficiency rate for Black students, right? Because we know that um, the reading proficiency, according to the Department of Education for Black students is 40% literacy rate. Um, and I believe that that was also something um, discovered with the last state report card, it's less than 50% that Black students are proficient in reading or math. So what would it look like to create a space that addresses the needs of Black students around literacy, right, around math proficiency within kind of this culturally responsive, um, but also Black empowerment lens, right? Like that, those are the types of of movements and needs that we should be addressing as opposed to um, trying to to outlaw the 1619 Project, for example. Um, And I just want to shout out Nicole Hannah-Jones from Waterloo, Iowa, um, catching all of of the pushback from people who are challenging her for telling the truth and encouraging black teachers and other teachers who are allies to also tell the truth. Right. So 
Um, I think that that proficiency rate really was striking to me um, as an educator, um, as someone that teaches at the university level as well, because it's like, wait a minute, 50% like you're literally failing black children in the state, literally. But the priorities are not on providing reading proficiencies. Like, I just think that a lot of the, a lot of the movement around what should and shouldn't be taught is just a distraction, right, from what needs to be addressed. And so um, I'm wondering a little bit more about what folks are thinking um, in relation to if you knew that that was the the state <laughs> report card data, but also what should teachers be doing, right? Especially in a space where it's majority white teachers. Mm-hmm. I, I would I have a few thoughts, but I would love to hear from Kiche about what it what it feels like to to be teaching in Iowa right now with this bill that just passed it seems like it's always been scary but like that's on another level right now absolutely i mean so just in general 79% of public school educators are white and 50% of public school students are people of color so that's something to keep in mind but i think for me as an educator I can, uh, I'm just really bad at lying in general. Like I'm just terrible at it. You know, when I'm lying. So why lie? So I'm just going to tell these kids the truth because they need to know what the real world is. Like you were saying, um, teaching at the collegiate level. My mom teaches at the collegiate level and there's so many of her students who don't have respect for her because she's a black woman, but baby, she has a PhD. She has more than one degree and she is more than, um, qualified to do her job. But some of these children that are coming, these adults now that are coming to her have not been told or been prepared to be these productive members of society. Um, And when we talk about the proficiency rates, I think that a lot of educators spend time pushing students through And instead of stopping and providing that intervention at an earlier time when it needs to happen, there are statistics that say if you don't have somebody to read to you or if you're not read to um, before you go to preschool, if you don't go to preschool, you're behind by a certain percentage already. So that if that happens, we have the opportunity right off the bat to help these children. So there's no real excuse for having 40 percent of unproficient children in schools that are people of color. Um, it just shows that white educators are, are, don't care. Um, what equitable things are people doing or not doing to help these children? Um, and we can say, oh, I love black children. I love children of color and I do everything for them. But are you passing them through your class and then not really giving them uh, the attention they need? Are you dis- spending time disciplining them instead of teaching them? Um, there's different things that go into it. But for myself with the laws, you can't stop me. 
Like I will go to jail for these kids because at this point it's, it's, it, that's what it is because I didn't have anybody who was going to go to jail for me. No educated work is going to go to jail for me, but these kids deserve to live and learn and be in a world that accepts them for who they are, no matter what intersectionality they are a part of or not a part of. And when we do not focus on the child and the fact that each individual child is different, then we begin to group. And then we get our 40% of black or children of color um, being not proficient and behind. Yeah, and then when you outlaw structural racism so it can't be taught, you just enact that racism, right, on on those those children and on those communities. And so I think that um, you all are bringing up some really great points. And I think that, yeah, that uh, data was specifically for Black students in the state of Iowa. Um, and, you know, it's just unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And I think that it would be really great to kind of talk about some strategies um, that teachers can use in addition to kind of building with groups like the Iowa Freedom Writers, right? Like the Des Moines um, Black Lives Matter chapter, like Black Lives Matter at School Iowa, right? What else can, what can folks do? Because um, what I've found here, and I'm, you know, fairly new to Iowa um, in a lot of ways, right? Not born and raised here, but been here um, about six years almost. And really just, recognizing that people want to help and support, but a lot of times allies um, don't know how to be accomplices, if that makes sense. And so really just um, not listening to Black leadership, trying to take the reins. So I'm just wondering about some strategies for folks who, um, for white folks in particular, who want to support these movements, but also for black teachers. So Denisha, did you, or Jesse, did you have that? Yeah. I mean, I'll just start briefly, you know, in the book, we have um, a group of teachers for white teachers who wrote our chapter, black uh, white teachers for black lives. Right. And so um, I think it's really important that we let, we under, we listen to how they engage in this movement. Right. Because in a lot of cities, it's great if you're Iowa black lives matter schools, all black teachers, because we cannot pull that off in, in the other cities. Right. Just because of the, the statistics that, you know, Ketchy gave us 79%, 80%, percent of the teaching force is white. When you show up to plan for Black Lives Matter at school, you tend to have a lot of white teachers. And I've been doing it, you know, both in New York City and in, in Washington, D.C. But I will say the white educators that I'm working with in New York City, they understand their role as white teachers in this movement, right? And how they are to lead, just to follow, right? To follow, not lead, right? Follow the Black people, support them in ways that means you put, you create an event that you can't attend, right? When we had our in-person week of action, we would have Black wellness educator events where the white educators would get the food going, get everything we needed and then disappear because the space was not for them. And there was no hard feelings about that. They understood that this is a black educator wellness space that we want to create for our black colleagues. Or we'll have a meeting where we'll invite all the black educators and say, what do you want to see happen with the week of action this year? And then they'll go do it and not expect them to do it because they know that black educators always do extra work already by mentoring and supporting and advocating for black children. Right. And so they 
they don't want to make it like the week of action to be another burden on them. So they take the heavy lifting and do it um, and really push it. Right. And, and they, even when we're seeing challenges in certain New York City school districts. Right. I've seen them come together and really kind of, you know, hold a space for the parents and the educators who are black or queer and are, they're, the schools are just really oppressive. Right. And we've demanded the schools in in the principle of loving, loving engagement. Right. We demanded that they make space, listen to these teachers and, and these parents and enact change. Right. And so there's a lot that white teachers can do that's good, but there's also the harm that can come, right? When, you know, they 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 want to do this work, but they don't work with the black and people of color teachers at their school. Like, what is that about? <laughs> like, we really need to interrogate this. If you're, if you're doing Black Lives Matter at school and you're a white teacher and you have not reached out to the black teachers and staff, right? And the students, what are you doing? Like, I really need to question that. That's a, that's a, that's a red flag because it shows me that you're making this about you. You got to start with the, the people who are experiencing this, right? Go to your black colleagues and really have this conversation and be like, I want to do this. How can I support this and not kind of do it on the side and not make it for them? Right. That's that's really an issue that I see happening sometimes. And again, it's the well-meaning good intentions, but that's not enough. Right? Your intentions can cause harm. And so it's not enough to say that you had a good idea. And so we're really pushing um, the white teachers we work with to really interrogate this stuff for themselves. Right. Really think about why are you doing this work? Are you, and it's not you're not here to save black children. You're here to save yourself yourself and, and um, educate yourself about what you know about black people. And maybe you're not ready to do this work. I met with a group of educators and like, maybe you should take a year and do some deep dive and self-reflections before you run into the classroom saying Black Lives Matter at school and you're not prepared for the responses your, your students might give you, right? Because it takes a lot of being prepared for that as well too. But, um, you know, it, so it continues. It continues to be work and we see people taking advantage of it, right? New York State, New York City finally endorsed the week of action, like Jesse said. Said, they they felt the pressure last summer and the educators been pushing them for years and the rollout was weak right you had a white teacher uh, in a meme and it was kind of they kind of all lives mattered the, the, the kick to the week of action like what are you doing like and so we've seen them very much trying to co-op the movement and say we've endorsed but then trying to water it down and not really make it what it's all about and only talk about diversity and loving engagement and empathy and globalism because those are nice principles but won't dare address unapologetically black and black women and queer affirming and transgender affirming so um, there's a lot of work to be done, but we're we're fortunate that we have some really dope white educators across the country who we can partner, you know, put you in touch with and say, see how they're doing it, right? And they're really learning from their local black community. We have a guy in now Washington State. He, he's like, you know, I he reached out to the black educators to get it going out there in Edmonds, right? And then when he gets pushback, he takes he stands up for that, and so that they don't get the pushback, it's on him, right? And so that's part of the strategy that he's engaging in to also protect them from being in this space that's kind of hostile a lot. So um, there, there's a lot that that we can do and that we should do to kind of help bring them along. And, you know, and, and the black teachers too need to step up and and, and call those black, those white colleagues out when they're not doing the work correctly either. Right. And I, and I wanted to have Jesse respond as well, but I just, you said something that I, that I wanted to latch on to. And one of the cities in Iowa, Iowa City specifically is known as the city of literature. Right. It's a UNESCO city of literature and it's beautiful to have so many writers and bookstores and all of these great things. And one thing that I found, though, is that people love to read about our struggles. Right. 
but then the action afterwards is is kind of missing. Um, it's often missing. And so I'm just wondering about that gap as well. So Jesse, please yeah. share your thoughts. Yeah, great points. Uh, I would say that the best white educators involved in Black Lives Matter at school and anti-racist pedagogy and, and activism are those that both understand their own white identity, their their own privilege and advantages that they get in society, but also they realize that they aren't free yet and that their freedom is also contingent upon our freedom, right? And to give you a concrete example of what I mean, they built a brand new $200 million youth jail just a few blocks from where I teach high school, right? So they have hundreds of millions of dollars to cage our children, but not to invest in their futures. And when you're talking about the system that's that's left black kids behind, that's what it looks like, right? And we know that dramatically disproportionately that facility is going to lock away black and brown youth, right? And, uh, you know, there, there will be dramatically more black and brown youth than, than white youth locked in, in that youth jail. But we also know that when you take hundreds of millions of dollars and you invest it in incarceration rather than in education, it will negatively impact white teachers and students as well. It means class sizes, uh, continue to rise, right, and and aren't what they should be. It means that uh, special ed ratios won't work. And we know it's disproportionately black and brown SPED students, but we also know that there are white SPED students, right? So these are, these are funding choices that are being used to incarcerate black people that end up hurting education for all students, right? And so if you want a quality education, a decent life, a living wage, you have to understand that your future also depends on the liberation of of black people as well, right? That we have, uh, that that our futures are are, um, tied up together. And, you know, I think really that lesson goes all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion when race was first becoming a category in human society, right? When when there was a multiracial rebellion and the enslavers wanted to make sure that they maintained power right after Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia was the first time that they enacted laws that were specifically based on race. And they were about making black people the slaves and no longer uh, not paying white indentured servants, right? And so then they could pay white people a little bit more and say, look how good you have it, because at least you're not a slave, right? And then that from that moment till this day, they've found, they've seen racism as such an important way to divide people who have a lot in common, who would do better off working together to take the wealth from those at the top. Uh, But still so many white people in this society view the black criminal element as their uh, 
their enemy or immigrants as their enemy or Muslims as their enemy rather than Jeff Bezos and Amazon that is laughing all the way to the bank, right? And taking taking uh, billions of dollars that they didn't work to earn. And, and that's something that I wanna overturn. And I'm inspired by educators across the country who are uh, opposing these bills. And I think we need to organize more and more white teachers, like you said, Lisa, not just to study this problem, but to, to join in the struggle. And these bills are the time to take action, right? You have to pick a side. You can't ride the fence anymore. Are you going to lie to your students or are you willing to risk uh, your livelihood and teach the truth? And so uh, I urge people to check out the quotes that people are leaving at the Zen Education Project. There's a teacher na named Aaron, a history teacher in Arizona, who left a statement saying, quote, the truth is worth more than five a $5,000 fine the state of Arizona wants to slap on me if I allow my students to become critical thinkers. They want to fine teachers $5,000 individually if they're in violation of the law that bans teaching structural racism. And there's a white teacher saying, I'm going to take the fine. And we need more teachers to step up like that uh, and, and be part of this this struggle as well. Did anyone else want to add anything on in relation to um, allies, but also empowering teachers, black teachers specifically? Well, okay, so I want to talk about the prison to pipeline sort of thing that we were that you touched on and and being an immigrant as well and how people treat um, us differently. Um, so I am a direct result of an immigrant and we came to America, but also my brother um, was a result from the school to prison pipeline. Um, he did what he did and it he went to jail and then um, his white counterparts did not get anything um, as harsh as he did. and. They did the same exact thing. So we, racism and that disproportionality in Iowa is very great. And we have this idea of Iowa nice and and we have all these policies that are progressive. But um, within those progressive policies, um, we are becoming complacent in that, like you were talking about earlier. So we have to push more towards culturally responsive teaching. And once again, that social emotional learning. Yeah, and I think that because in 2019, um, the state of Iowa actually issued a, a disparities report, right, around juvenile justice and identified that Black youth 10 to 17 were six and a half times more likely to enter the juvenile justice system. So your brother, right, is part of that. And I think that that school to prison pipeline is very um insidious in Iowa, in the schools that, that I've been a part of, but also this idea that we should just pass students along, right? And that we, you know, we don't want to cause any problems or we don't want to make them feel bad or even have any idea about potential, right? So students getting passed along and, and a teacher was explaining to me 
that the challenge with that is that then they end up in college, right, with what Denisha is saying, and they don't have the critical thinking skills. We already know the proficiency rate here is is dismal, right? So how do you combat that? Because that is another route to prison, right? To not be able to engage critically in classes and advance once you're beyond the school district, right? So really needing to think about how how does that work and, and what does that mean for Black students? But in particular, I'll go ahead and just ask one of our last questions to see about Black teachers in Iowa, right? Because it is a small percentage of the teaching population, but um, we're here. So if you're here, we're here for you and want to continue to build across the state um, to connect with folks to see how can we support you, but also how can teachers, Black teachers specifically in these school districts, how can they feel empowered? What suggestions do y'all have for that particular engagement? Because the stories that I hear from from teachers in K-12 environments is that the burnout is real and the expectation to parade your pain in order for non-Black people to learn is seems to be extremely common. And so I'm just wondering some thoughts around around that. Um, Denisha, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I did want to start and say, you know, the issue of reading proficiency test scores and academic achievement, I think we need to be careful around that. Like it is important. And I think we need to be clear on what we are saying is that a 79%, 80% white teaching force has failed our children because a lot of times they use the academic achievement against us, right? And against the teachers. So, you know, there's a white teacher in Florida who was kicked out of her class because she had a Black Lives Matter stuff. And today she found out because one of the people, the commissioner of her education system was talking about her and saying, I got her fired because of her. He's like, and he threw it back at her and said, if you want, you want to teach Black Lives Matter, but the kids can't read. Now she's a highly effective teacher, right? But I think they're going to use that against us, right? And say, and like, it's our fault because we're too busy teaching Black, you know, Black Lives Matter and racism, structural racism that the kids aren't doing well when it actually it's the curriculum, right? It's the Eurocentric curriculum that gives them nothing to, it's, it doesn't provide, it's like the mirror, curriculums are like mirrors, right? Well, guess what? That, that, the children are not reflected in that image, right? The American school system does not reflect Black children in an image back to them in any way that makes them want to engage as learners, right? And so I think we have to remember that, right? Like the system is failing our kids and instead of doing anything about it, right? Instead of addressing the, increase in white nationalists recruiting students online on, you know, the people who rioted on the Capitol on January 6th, you're, you're not addressing any of that. You're attacking people for talking about racism, right? And no one's teaching young kids critical race theory. I can barely teach it in my college classes because I'm still learning it. It's a theoretical framework that we use as researchers, right? And no one's sitting down with a bunch of third graders and be like, let me tell you about the tenets of critical race theory. They're going to look at you like you done lost your mind, right? And so it's crazy to see them latch onto this idea because it's the only words they have and they don't know what it is and they don't know how it's being used, but to to hide what's really happening, right? And then if we think about it in another way, right? If the school system was, the teachers were 79% black 
and 40% of white children were at a proficiency level, they would have fired all the black teachers right now and not allow them anywhere near white students, right? But we can't say the flip side, which is your white curriculum, your white teachers, your white approach to black children, it's failing them, right? Because it doesn't allow them to really see themselves in this curriculum. And I think if we look at the work of like Goldie Muhammad, right? And thinking about culturally historic literacy programs, right? And, and she's got a new book out about black literacy for girls, right? And this is life-changing work, right? Right? And if we think about ethnic studies in Arizona and what they went through, and it's really interesting how I was trying to compare the law because I'm like, isn't this just going to be like ethnic studies in Arizona? No, because Iowa and other states think they're slick, right? Because they have all these slick lawyers who are, uh, they're structuring it differently. They're talking about federal government, about training, colleges, and that sorts of things, because they know that they can't go after the curriculum they went, the way they did in Arizona, right? Because we saw that come back and got, you know, pushed back. So I think it's going to be a continued struggle. But for the Black teachers, it's really important that they have the solidarity that they need and the support from administrators, from parents. Right. Here's the thing. Black parents, they can't fire you. They can't find you. I mean, they can try and lock you up, right, if your kid doesn't come to school, right? But they can't, they can't, you can raise all holy hell and you have every right to, right? Any parent, white parent, black parent, Latinx parents, Asian American parents, they all need to come together and say, no, this is a vocal minority of people who are pissed off at the world and want to change things, right? They don't speak for us. We need every parent, right? And only student to speak up and say, no, we don't care what the law says. We want this education. We want to learn the truth. We want to decide for ourselves, right? And so I think that's where we're going to need the solidarity. And it's been a struggle with COVID, right? Because the media is pitting parents against teachers, and we can't let them do that to Black teachers and, and Black parents and other kids at the schools who know, right? White parents will tell you how great some Black teachers are for their kids, right? They know. So we're going to need you to step up, right? If you're a white parent and you had a black great Black teacher for your child, you're going to need to step up, right? And really support them through this. And I know that Parents are going to be the ones that say no, and, and we'll vote out people who sign this law, right? You have that power to do that. And so I think that's the kind of solidarity that we're going to need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could jump in for a minute, too, and just say that I think uh, that first literacy rates will go way up when there's something relevant to the students' lives to read. Right. When they're reading about how to uh, confront the problems that they see in their communities, they're going to read. If if you're talking to kids about, um, you know, the, the rampant police violence that they see and that they're scared of and, and their readings help them make sense of it and and understand where it came from and how they could build safer communities right they're going to be motivated to to read and i think um for too long we've only judged the brilliance of black students based on standardized test scores that reduce the intellectual and emotional process of teaching and learning to a single score and they measure the ability to eliminate wrong answer choices very well but not the ability to think critically, right? And so by the measures of standardized testing that were invented by eugenicists and grafted onto the public schools in the early 1900s, our kids are way behind. But when you 
uh, ask students, can you identify problems in your community and collective solutions to those problems? You find that black students can actually uh, excel. And so uh, I think when we begin to bring those issues into our, our readings and our classrooms, we're going to see our black students do quite well. And I would just say that in, in terms of uh, black, black teachers in this struggle, you know, they've always been in this struggle from the time that it was illegal to be literate and black educators would sneak off the plantation and teach people to read and write, right? It was illegal back then and these laws right now to me are echoes of those those laws uh banning the literacy of enslaved african people they don't want us to know about ourselves so that so we can get free and courageous educators have always risked everything to get that education from risking your life during slavery to septima clark one of the great educators of all time, a black woman who uh, was an organizer with the NAACP, and they said you had to give that up or you'll be fired. And of course, she wouldn't give it up and, uh, you know, cost her her job, but she continued organizing the freedom schools. Right. And, you know, that's the tradition that I think that we stand in and, and the kind of moment that we're at in history where we need people to learn those lessons about fugitive pedagogy and to begin to rebuild a mass rebellion in this country um, inside the classroom, teaching the truth and also in the streets, organizing to defund the police and redirect that funding for education, health care uh, and all the things that our communities need. Right. Definitely. And I think that, you know, in in thinking about Arizona, right, and thinking about ethnic studies and black studies, I'm thinking about how I think it was 2014 where students in Iowa City Community School District were protesting and approaching the school board to have a required ethnic studies or black studies course, right? And so those students are, you know, off in college and they still do not have a required, a requirement of that nature. And so I think that programs like what's going on in Waterloo with um, folks partnering with Nicole Hannah-Jones to teach The 1619 Project is very important and needs to continue in the community. And in Iowa City, specifically, the Sankofa Outreach Connection uh, was founded by two Black women here in Iowa to provide resources and support for women of color and girls of color. Just received some funding with us to do an Ethnic Studies Leadership Academy for Black girls in Iowa. So you know, those are, you know, we have to often think outside of the box. And so I I wonder about how restrictive it, it feels when I talk to teachers, right, who are kind of 
getting pushback from administrators, right? Getting pushback from teachers because they have a a Black Lives Matter flag in the in the classroom. Um, so all of these different elements are kind of floating around, but the pushback comes from things that often are not are still not addressed, right? So I'm just wondering what thoughts you have in relation to um, how should folks build community? Um, within whether it's within their school district, across their state, um, because Iowa is not unique in that it's a majority white state, right? Um, there are a lot of states like this, but using this context here, I'm just I'm just wondering if folks have thoughts about that. Um, Kiche, did you have uh, thoughts around that or anything else you wanted to to address before I go to Denisha or Jesse? I just wanted to talk about the curriculum and what we're teaching our kids. Um, for most individuals or most uh, districts, they have a curriculum that has been presented um, and there's standards that we have to follow. And in, in my teaching, I stick to the standards, but I don't necessarily stick to the curriculum. And I feel like people should have more power to do that and, and empowerment because what the law says, we have to teach these kids certain things, but what's, but it doesn't say that we don't have to expand our knowledge, expand our children's knowledge about, if we're talking about math concepts, it's easy to provide a person of color that is a mathematician or does coding or plenty of examples. Um, You can engage students in so many different ways whether um, you want them to write you a rap song because that's the only way they're good at writing um, or many opportunities. You just have to talk to the children and understand where they're coming from. If we we can do all these things for kids. Right. But if we don't get their opinion and we, if we don't include them in the conversation about themselves, then we can't get anywhere. Right. Definitely. And I think that, you know, a lot of times that that's hard for teachers, right? To think about how to engage um, black students, but they've never asked the student, right? Um, so that's that's something that's really important that we need to think about doing. Denisha, did you have some thoughts? Um, I just, you know, I really want people to, to remember that as we're doing this work, as we're organizing, that we should always like be centering black joy. And, and when I say that to a lot of people, like some of my students and they don't know, and if you don't know what that means and that that's, that's the work, right? <laughs> because we have to like, yes, this is a struggle and it's been a long struggle, but we're not coming at the struggle in the way they want us to, right? We are centering um, black joy in this work. And I think that's important, a part of the narrative, right? So really organize, you know, since we started Black Lives Matter at school, some school districts have had pushback from their schools, right? Some some schools. And so um, what we saw, what we what saw people do is they, one year they went outside the school system, right? Oh, the school want to act like they don't want to do that? Okay. You're, you probably have a local Black Lives Matter chapter in your city. You have Black businesses, you have other people, and then they invited the youth, but they did it outside of the school. So the school doesn't get to own this, right? So these laws are restricting the government, right? And schools are a function of the government, right? But there are, people can do this. You can you get spaces in and, and have these discussions and you can bring this knowledge and do this work. And so I think, like Jesse 
he said, learn from the history of our ancestors who have been, you know, long time in the education and, and seeing it as a part of the liberation and keep that going. But always remember to center black joy, because if we don't right, we're going to fall into the traps, right, of, of of doing this work and getting really burnt out because we're not doing it through through a lens of joy. And I think that's really important. And I think that is like the perfect place to to end on Black joy and and not on Black pain, right? Which is often exploited in the classroom. And so, you know, Black joy in in everything that we do in relation to Black students is a beautiful aspiration. Thank you so much for that. Thank you all for being here. Um, thank you to Haymarket and Prairie Light and Black Lives Matter at School Iowa for sponsoring. Um, really, we really appreciate everyone for coming out. Have a good night. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you, Ketche. Keep doing that hard work out there in Iowa. We see you. Thank you. No doubt. Good luck. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.